We are here to celebrate uh, Easter, and uh, we've already done a bit of singing about it. Uh, I'm going to speak a bit about it. We're going to have a, a baptism at the end, which kind of is a, as a picture of what the Easter story is all about. Uh, but before we go any further, let me just pause for a word of prayer, and then we'll, and then we'll continue. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for an opportunity to gather here. Lord, so, so thankful for everyone who could make it here this morning. Uh, thankful that we have a reason to come and celebrate and remember, uh, Lord, the story of Easter, the events of the cross and the resurrection. Uh, I pray that this time would be a time that is uh, purposeful and fruitful. I pray, Lord, that our own hearts and minds would be uh, stirred to, to think and wonder and consider uh, all the events of the, the story of Easter. And um, I pray, Lord, that it would be profitable in our lives. Uh, I pray you'd help me to, to bring words that are helpful and uh, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be honored as we spend this time together uh, in our own hearts and minds, Lord, that we would draw near to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, indeed, uh, you know, the purpose uh, of an Easter service is to remember Easter, to think about uh, Easter. Uh, it's uh, kind of on a few different levels. We want to remember the story itself and think of the, what it meant for the people back then, but also, of course, uh, think of what it means for us uh, today. Uh, our Easter sermon series over the past few weeks, uh, in it we've been going over just a little portion of the Easter story, uh, the, the, the trial of Jesus before the Roman governor uh, Pontius Pilate, and uh, we titled the series, What to Do with Jesus, so you, you can see it there. Uh, we said, we titled it this for a couple of reasons. Um, from Pilate's point of view, we were asking the question, what is he going to do with Jesus? Uh, this man brought by the, the Jewish religious leaders, uh, they're accusing him of uh, crimes against the states. They, they want him punished. They want him crucified. So what is Pilate going to do? Is he going to uh, acquit him? Is he going to convict him? Is he going to crucify him? So that's on the one level. But on another level, uh, we've been asking the question, what are we to do with Jesus? As we consider him in light of the Easter story and, and what the Bible teaches about him, will we accept him? Will we reject him? Will we follow him or will we kind of admire him from a safe distance? Uh, it should be noted, we, we, we mentioned this at the very beginning, uh, it should be noted that Pilate actually did not want to decide what to do with Jesus. Uh, when they first brought Jesus to him, uh, he, he tried to pass Jesus off. First he said to the Jewish leaders, like, you take him, you go deal with him yourself according to your own law. But they said, no, we want him crucified. It needs to be in a Roman trial. Uh, then he tried to send him to Herod, another leader, uh, but he sent him back. That didn't help. Then uh, we saw also that he tried to get the people to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. And they did, but they chose Barabbas. So Jesus, he still, he couldn't get off the hook. He still had to make this decision and he didn't want to do it. Because he knew that no matter what he decided, uh, there would be trouble. Either trouble with the, the Jewish leaders, perhaps, or the Roman uh, leadership, or his own conscience. And so Pilate was really trying to stay a neutral. Even at the very end of the trial, when he actually decided, we know what happened, he said, you're, you're going to be crucified. But look at how he did that. Here's Matthew 27, 24. Uh, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd. Right, he washed his hands of it, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So he wanted to give the impression, even though he was the one condemning Jesus, that it wasn't, it wasn't on him. He's, he's trying to stay neutral. Lots of people, I think, try to stay neutral about Jesus, especially in our culture, in our day. Most people would rather not have to make a decision uh, about Jesus. 
uh, because he doesn't make it easy, frankly, to make a decision. Uh, on the one hand, there's lots of kind of positive connotations with Jesus in our culture, whether you're inside or outside the church. Uh, you, you have the, the, the many quotes that we know that come from Jesus that, that we hear just kind of it's woven into our culture. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Turn the other cheek. The meek shall inherit the earth. Let your light shine. Suffer the little children to come unto me. All these great lines that we, you know, it's in all sorts of things. His, his teachings, his parables are well known, almost universally celebrated. His miracles are the stuff of legends, even if you don't believe in them. So lots of positive connotations, but there's also a lot of kind of, we say negative or difficult things to accept about Jesus. The main one is that, you know, he says he's God, so that is difficult. Uh, the Bible says he rose from the dead, that's also difficult. The words that he says are not always light and fluffy. He says that he's going to come to judge the world, that he comes to divide families over the issues of, of faith, so it's tough just to kind of accept all of him as, as he is. And so most of the time, people just would rather not deal with Jesus, not decide what to do with him. Uh, references to our faith in God, perhaps that's okay. Spirituality, that, that's okay. But Jesus is kind of prickly. The truth, however, is that ignoring Jesus or trying to ignore him is like trying to ignore the gravitational pull of the sun. See, Jesus, he's, he's just too weighty to ignore. He has too much cultural and historical mass to, to be ignored, even for those who don't believe in him. So here's a quote uh, I came across from H.G. Wells. You might recognize his name. He's an old English author and historian. Uh, he says this. He says, I am a historian. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. So on this Easter, 2,000 some odd years after he was born, uh, we are going to consider this penniless preacher from Nazareth. If you've already come to a decision about Jesus, my hope is that this, this time, the things I say will simply bolster that faith, but it would encourage you in it. But if you haven't, my hope is that it will provoke uh, a genuine sense of consideration for Jesus and the things that are, that are claimed about him. So, what to do with Jesus? Uh, two questions. I think we have to basically ask and answer two essential questions to have some sense of what we are going to do with him. And the first one is this. Uh, is Jesus just a man or is he God? Pretty much everyone agrees that he is or was a man, uh, that he actually walked the earth. You, you can't find many credible historians who would actually say that d deny that. In fact, uh, if you look at even first century historians and writers, there's, there's over 10 of them that just mention Jesus, just that, that he, affirming that he existed. Here's one of them. A Tacitus, Roman historian, uh, said this in, in one of his writings, Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of the procurator Pontius Pilate. So that's what you find in the pages of history, just references to this man, Jesus, and what, what happened to him. So we know he was a man. The question is, was he only a man or was he divine? And I think we'd all agree that makes a big difference in terms of what we're going to do with him, how we're going to consider him. There are, of course, whole books written on this topic, on this question. And if you're interested, we can suggest some of them to you. But just for our time this morning, uh, I thought we just would begin by going right to the source. Uh, the his historical document, the Bible, uh, credible historical document, what, what does it say about this question? What, is, what does God's own word reveal about Jesus in terms of, of who he is? And what we see throughout scripture consistent, consistently 
is that Jesus is the Son of God. And by Son of God, just so we're clear, that, that means he is God. If you're the son of something, you're that thing, right? So if you're the son of a Greek, like me, I mean, I'm a Greek. If you're the son of an elephant, you are an elephant. That's how, that's how things work. So if you're the son of God, he's, he's God. And that's what we see in Scripture over and over again. All the voices in Scripture, they testify to this, even those who are opposed to Jesus. So, for example, the angel, in, in proclaiming that Jesus will be born, says it this way to Mary, Luke 1, 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Son of God. That's, that's who's, that's who's going to be born to you, Mary. Uh, then later on, when Jesus gets older and he's beginning his ministry, he's going to be baptized. As he's baptized from heaven, God the Father speaks. Here's what he says in Matthew 3. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So God himself, the Father, reveals this to the people who are listening audibly. And Jesus says this about himself. He claims this. Look at John 14, 9. Jesus said to him, one of the disciples, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Right? Notice, they're two distinct persons, but they share the same nature, a divine nature. And of course, a bunch of other people, just human beings, disciples, John the Baptist, they affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. Even the centurion, who just finished crucifying Jesus, nailing him to the cross, said this, Matthew 27, 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake, this is when he's crucified, there's this massive earthquake, it took place, they were filled with awe, and they said, truly this was the Son of God. Imagine, think about that for a moment, this centurion would have crucified hundreds of people, that was his job, right? Human being, after he was nailed to the cross, he, he knew what people were, and yet, at this, this moment of wonder, he looks up and his heart is open to believe this this isn't just a man. This is God himself. And even the demons, who are, of, co of course, opposed to Jesus, they, they know he's the Son of God. Look at Mark 3.11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. So, to read the Bible with any sense of, of seriousness is to be confronted with the idea that Jesus wasn't just a, a teacher or prophet. He was God in the flesh. We can't reduce him to just being a man and be consistent with his own claims about himself and what the Bible says about him, which, which really is key because this is what people tend to want to believe about Jesus. They want to accept certain parts of him, right? the parts that are easily palatable, but the other part just kind of pushed to the side, but you, you, you can't do that. Right? You, you can't pull him apart. You need to accept him as he is. In fact, he doesn't allow us that that opportunity or that possibility. Now, some of you may know C.S. Lewis writing on this issue. He gives the famous quote where he says there's only three options for Jesus. Uh, either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. Uh, but I thought this morning we'd look at a, a different theologian, a little more contemporary theologian. Uh, Bono has some things to say about Jesus, <laughs> which I thought would be very helpful. I, I don't know if you know this. Bono professes faith in, in Jesus. And he was being interviewed a couple years ago uh, by the interviewer Mitchka Asayas. And they were talking about his faith, talking about Jesus. And the interviewer uh, said, basically, look, Jesus, Jesus is a really interesting guy. But to think that he's God, that seems a bit far-fetched. And Bono responds to that. I think he does a good job uh, sort of articulating the truth. So I'm going to read his words. He's got a bunch of words. He's an artist. Okay, he's got lots of things to say. But then at the end, we'll summarize his point. So here's Bono's response to the idea that it's kind of far-fetched to think that Jesus is actually God. He says, look, 
The secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of the other prophets like Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, and Confucius, but actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off the hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm saying, I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I am the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And the people back then, Bono's imagining, are saying, no, no, please, just, just be a prophet. Okay, a prophet we can take. A prophet we can handle. You're a bit eccentric. We, we've had John the Baptist eating, you know, wild uh, bugs and locusts and honey. We can handle that, but don't mention the M word. Because if you mention the M word, we're going to have to crucify you. And Bono goes on and... Uh, Jesus says, no, no, you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, the Romans, but, but actually I am the Messiah. And at that point, Bono imagines people begin to just look at their shoes and say, oh, he's going to keep saying this. He's not going to stop. So here's the point. So what you're left with is either, okay, either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, says Bono, that's far-fetched. Now look, I know he's a rock and roll star. He wears sunglasses inside. But I'm just saying that, that's, <laughs> that there's a logical consistency to that argument that we can't deny. Right? What he's saying is, look, crazy people, they usually don't have this kind of impact on the world. If, if we remember them at all, it's because we remember that they're, that they're crazy, right? That's what we know about them. That guy was crazy, whatever happened. Usually there's nothing solid and stable and fruitful that, that builds around them the way it has with Christianity. So why is Jesus, if he is crazy, if he's a nutcase, why is he still a central figure in human history? Why is Christianity still such an influential force in the world? How do we reconcile the respectable, wise teacher with the man who claimed to be the son of God? sent to die for his sins and then rise again? How do, how, do we, how do we square that circle? Well, to do that, we need to ask a second question. Because really the first question is dependent upon the second question about Jesus, which is this. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? I think we'd also agree that this is important to know, to figure out. Right? It makes a big difference. If he, if he actually came back to life or not, that'll help us to understand, is he actually divine or not? Uh, the Bible itself admits that Christianity sinks or swims on, on this issue. 1 Corinthians 15, 16, the Apostle Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. He's saying there's no point worshiping a dead God. There's no, there's no benefit. You'd still be in your sin. In fact, it's, it's foolish. It's pointless. All that energy and effort, what, what is the point? So, so the key is, did it happen, right? Did he actually rise from the dead? But as we heard in our readings, uh, that's actually something that's very difficult to believe, not just for us today, all these years later, but even, even for the disciples back then. Uh, Grace read from, you know, the part in John where, where Mary finds the, the tomb and what's her... Her reaction, it's not immediately, wow, he's been resurrected. It's what happened to the body. She goes and tells the other disciples that the tomb is open. Someone has taken the body. We've got to figure out what happened. That, that's the natural response, even when they've been with Jesus. They don't, they don't think resurrection. And Thomas, of course. Thomas, speaking to disciples who have seen the resurrected Jesus, he says, I'm never going to believe in that unless I see him in, in the flesh. Again, 
There are volumes written on this question, on whether this is true or not, but I would just like to do one thing this morning. Okay, one thing to help us think about this, and that's, that's to show you that the Bible doesn't expect us just to believe this in some airy-fairy kind of religious thing. You know, sometimes Christians are like, just don't think about it, just believe. That's, that's not what the Bible says. The, the Bible expects us to believe this because of the evidence presented and because of the testimony of the Spirit in our hearts to bring us to the point of faith, but there's, there's evidence there. Now, there's a lot of supernatural stuff too. In the Easter story. I mean, in Matthew, an angel descends from the sky, rolls away the stone, sits on it, and speaks to the, the women and says, look, Jesus is risen. So that's one testimony from God. But it, it's, like the, it's like God knows some of us might like something more concrete than an angel. And so for that, we want to look to the, the passage that was read in John. Peter and John running to the tomb, right? Mary told them something's going on. And let's pick it up in verse 5. And stooping to look in, he, uh, this is John, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the, first, the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. That last line I think is important. So the other disciple is John. He, he went in the tomb, he looked in, and then he believed. So whatever he saw there brought him to the point of believing something that was unbelievable. Right? Whatever, he was just looking, and that, he, he didn't even see Jesus yet. So the question, of course, is what did he look at? What was so compelling? What, was, what did he see? And we, we have it there. Look again, verses six and seven. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, to understand the importance of these details, we need to get in the right frame of mind. And for that, uh, I want to introduce you to a woman named Frances Glessner Lee. Uh, she was born a long time ago, 1878. She was born to a very wealthy Chicago family. I know it looks uh, like she's just a regular grandma, right? She's like knitting something. She's making uh, doll clothes for a dollhouse, but that's not what she's doing. She's actually knitting clothes for a doll that will be used in a crime scene diorama. Frances Glessner Lee got very, very interested in crime scene investigation when she was a young girl. Her family wasn't into it for obvious reasons, but <laughs> when, when her, everyone else passed away, she was left with a lot of money. And she had this passion for crime scene investigations where she donated a whole bunch of money to Harvard to start the first school training doctors to become medical examiners. She wanted doctors, people to be able to examine the bodies and figure out what happened, how did they die. And she wanted the police to get better at their investigative techniques. But she realized you can't just bring a bunch of trainees, detective trainees, to a crime scene, right? They're going to mess everything up. It's going to be crowded. So her idea was to build little miniature crime scenes with dolls in the place of bodies and all the details to give to a detective, a detective trainee, and say, figure out what happened. And she built 18 of these things, and uh, it was to train detectives. They, they used them for many, many years. And I know what you're thinking. I want to see one of these things, right? Okay, so I have a couple pictures. <laughs> this first one is called The Kitchen. Here it is. Okay. It's just a doll. It's okay. It's just relax. Okay. <laughs> But the whole point is that you would, there'd be a little bit of information. You would look at all the bits, all the parts. She made all of these things, took her months, and that you would have to solve the case. Okay, I'll give you one more. Okay, this one is called the dark bathroom. Again, for obvious reasons, right? I think we know what the problem there was, <laughs> the drowning. And it was, but notice she crocheted all the stockings, all the things. Anyway, 
The point, the reason I'm telling you this, okay, is not, not to freak you out. It's because we should be thinking of the empty tomb like a crime scene, okay? We should be thinking to ourselves, if Francis Glessner Lee was going to build a little mini diorama of the tomb, what, what would be in there? She would, she would build it out of, I don't know, styrofoam, this, this cave, that's what it was, carved into the rock. There'd be shelves there on one of the shelves, probably the lower one. There would be these grave clothes lying in the shape of a body, and then another few grave clothes lying uh, beside it where the head would have been. Now, to us, this doesn't seem very significant, but we have to understand how Jews were buried at the time. See, first the body would be washed, then the body would be wrapped in linen cloths. And uh, they wrapped the body not like a mummy, but from the sh- only from the shoulders down. And in the layers of the cloth, they would add spices to mask the smell of death. We see in John 19.39 that they used 75 pounds of spices. Uh, Jesus, that's like a kingly burial for, for Jesus. Uh, some wealthy believers brought it in, and so they would layer it in the cloth, right? Layer, wrap, wrap, wrap. And then there was another piece of cloth that would, was wrapped around the head, and it was kind of uh, done like a turban. That's why it says it's folded or wrapped, and then that's how they would be placed, and they would be left there. So imagine that a bunch of uh, Jewish detectives were looking at this miniature crime scene that she had built. What conclusion would they come to, given what they know about Jewish burial practices and the evidence that is there? Well, it doesn't look like the body was taken, right? Because if the body was taken, probably they would take the grave clothes too. That's what a lot of people say. Jesus wasn't resurrected. The body was stolen. That's what Mary thought at first. But it doesn't fit the evidence because they wouldn't just leave the clothes. They wouldn't take the naked body. They would just take the whole thing. Everything would be gone. It also doesn't look like the body was resuscitated. That's often what you hear, an explanation that Jesus wasn't fully dead and that when they put him in the grave, he kind of came to and he got up and he rolled the stone away. But that also doesn't make sense because probably there'd be some of the linen cloths left and also the spices would be everywhere. None of that is mentioned, right? None of those explanations fit what is actually there in the scene. The best explanation is that the body just disappeared, that it dematerialized. Okay, and when that happened, the weight of the spices, all the cloth would have collapsed, but the cloth on the head would have stayed folded because there are no spices there. It would be always kind of, already kind of wrapped like a turban. This is consistent with the Christian teaching about resurrection bodies. They can materialize and dematerialize. That's what we see with Jesus. He just appears in rooms. And this explains why John, knowing all of this, he knows how Jews are buried. He steps in the tomb. He looks for a moment and then he believes. Okay, he knows what must have happened. Because he, he, he can see the evidence before him. And, and listen, it's up to each one of us to decide what we think about the resurrection. But what I'm saying is this. Instead of simply making an assumption about something that's difficult to believe, follow the evidence. Because there's actually a lot of evidence. Not, not just this tiny little sliver. I mean, there's eyewitnesses. Hundreds and hundreds of people saw the resurrected Jesus. And many of them, all the disciples, they all went to their death saying, Jesus is risen. He is Lord. And we know that people will die for all sorts of crazy reasons, but no one really dies for something they know is a lie. If they knew that the body had been taken, if they knew it wasn't true, they wouldn't, they wouldn't go to their death. But each one of them died saying, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is alive. He's the risen Savior. See, Jesus is, is not just some mythic figure. It's not like Zeus. He's not like Hercules. He's a man integrated into the pages of history. And history points to the credibility of the Easter story and to the divinity of Christ himself. So when we come back to our question of, of what to do with Jesus, I think, I think the disciple Thomas gives us a good roadmap 
in terms of how we should respond. Remember he said, I'm not going to believe that unless I see him. And then he will read it again. John 20, 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What did Thomas do? He looked at the evidence before him and considered everything he knew about Jesus and he worshiped him as Lord and King, the risen Savior. To which you might say, yeah, but it's easier to do that when Jesus is actually standing in front of you. We can actually see the holes in his hands and that's very true. It's easier, but it's not necessarily better. Notice how Jesus responded to Thomas. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that those he's talking about are all the people in the future, us, who will come to the point of believing but don't have the benefit of seeing Jesus in the flesh. But the question is, well, why why are we blessed for that? You you get the sense that Jesus is saying, it's good for you, Thomas, but it's even better for those who would come to, to believe that not having seen me. Why is it better? Because to come to the point of believing in the resurrection without seeing the resurrected Jesus means that we have genuine faith. Genuine faith. And faith is that which saves us. That's, that, that's, that's the essential thing we need. We, we don't just, it's not enough simply to respect Jesus. It's not enough simply to tolerate him or to be interested in him intellectually in some vague sense. It, it's faith, it's belief that he is who he says he is, trusting in his, his death and his resurrection to save us from sin and then seeking to worship him as Thomas did with the rest of our lives. That, that is the thing which brings genuine hope into any human being's life. And that is the purpose of the Easter story. Look at the last couple verses. John 20, 30, and 31. He kind of wraps up this section by saying, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the point. That human beings who since the time of the garden have been plagued by death, have been plagued by despair, human beings who have tried everything, you you know we have, to try to find some measure of comfort and genuine life that will endure hope for this life and the life to come. Human beings who are under the eternal consequences of our our sin, that we would have hope again. That that we would have genuine life. A life that would endure, not in ourselves, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. Because of the one who came from heaven, lived the life that we could never live, and then went to the cross and died in our place so that our sins would be forgiven and then rose from the dead so that we would know even though death is coming for us, it can't hold us because then our faith is in him. We too are alive forever. He is the one who brings the life change that we need, the hope that we need. And in case you're you're, you're worried or wondering, look, Matt, that sounds, I mean, great, but I've thought about this and I, I just don't know if I can actually come to the thing of believing something that I, I can't see. The testimony of scripture is that it's not just up to our brains to make this happen. That God's spirit is the one who enlivens our heart, opens our minds to believe that which is true. And that it's actually by God's power that we come to faith. We see the evidence for what it is and that we worship Jesus as he truly is. I'm gonna pray for us that this would be true in our lives, and then we're going to see baptisms for those who've had this change. Uh, So let me pray. 
Lord Jesus, we are so thankful. Thankful that it's clear from scripture, clear from the pages of history that not only are you a man who walked the earth, but you are God. You are the son who came at the behest of the father to do the thing which none of us can do, which is to earn a righteousness before, before God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that for each one here, whether we're already people of faith, whether we're just interested, uh, Lord, may you draw us closer to yourself. Would, would you help us to open our minds and hearts to see that which you say is true about yourself? And Lord, I thank you for those that are being baptized today who have come to that point of faith. May you bless them. May we, may we be blessed by the testimony we are about to hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.